Thanks, Michelle. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to uh, the book of Matthew in the New Testament, uh, Matthew chapter 19. Uh, we're going to pick up the reading in verse 27. If you've got a, a Bible in front of you in the pews, it's page 1,529. Just to give you some context, in the verses leading up to this passage we're going to look at, uh, Jesus encounters a synagogue ruler often called the rich young ruler, a man who he issues a challenge in verse 21 to someone who's trusted in their riches rather than God. He says, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come, follow me. After three years of following Jesus, his disciples had heard these types of challenges before, but what they probably were surprised by was the promised reward, treasures in heaven. And as a result, one of his disciples, Peter, would would ask a question that would betray an unspoken belief. And when Jesus replies, he does more than satisfy his curiosity. He actually paints them a picture of a God to challenge that belief. It's what we see here in Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 27. This is the word of the Lord. Peter answered him, meaning Jesus, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, I I tell you the truth, that the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to uh, pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About the third hour, uh, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the, the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. Then about the eleventh hour, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about the eleventh hour came and each received denarius. And so when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, Friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money, or are you envious? Because I am generous. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. In his ministry, as we see in the Gospels, Jesus has said a lot of memorable things, some memorable because of how gracious they are. Some because of how challenging they are, some because of how offensive they are, and some because they're just puzzling. 
They're like a riddle to be solved. Things like the first will be last and the last will be first. This morning as we try to unpack what Jesus has packaged into that that statement, we're going to find something that's not only gracious, but also challenging and even uh, offensive. Uh, The type of thing that's so hard to hear directly that Jesus has to say it indirectly uh, through a parable. Here Jesus elaborates on this puzzling statement to help us understand how do things work in his kingdom. So this morning, I just want us to ask three questions as we look at this passage. Uh, First, what is Jesus actually saying here? And then why is it offensive? So much so that he has to say it in the form of a parable. And then third, why do we need to hear this today? Uh, First, what's Jesus actually saying here in this, this passage? You see, he says this thing about the first and the last, but in between he tells a parable, a story, to help us understand what that statement means. Uh, It's a story about a landowner who goes to what's their local equivalent in their day of the Home Depot, where you would always go to to find workers for the day. Uh, The first group uh, we read starts early in the morning. These are the go-getters. They're going to work from sunup until sundown, uh, 12 hours long. They're the the go-getters. And then three hours later, the third hour of daylight, that's about 9 a.m., Uh, He goes back and hires more, and then around noon, he hires more, and then on 3 o'clock, he hires more, and then around 5 o'clock, the 11th hour of daylight, he comes back and hires still more. This group has already agreed to work for a denarius. It's a normal day's wage uh, for workers, about $100 in, in modern equivalent. For the others, though, he simply says he'll pay them whatever is right. So at the end of the day, the last workers are hired first. They get, they get a whole denarius. They get a, a full day's wage for their work. And the first workers are getting excited. They're thinking, maybe we heard him wrong. Maybe he said a denarius per hour. And then they get paid exactly the same. And it doesn't sit well with them at all. Jesus says these are people that were given exactly what they were promised But in the end, they were grumbling. They hated it. And Jesus concludes by saying again, the last will be first and the first will be last. It's it's this riddle, uh, but but it's actually not that hard of a riddle. Uh, Somebody once asked their their kids, what do you think Jesus means when he says the first will be last and the last will be first? And they think about it for a little bit. They're thinking like a race. So if there's two people, if the last is first and the first is last, it's like, well, well, that's it. It's a tie. They, they all finish together. They get the same. In verse 14, that's what Jesus says this parable is about. They all get the same. And it's no coincidence that he's telling this parable at this time to these people. Because Peter, who spoke up along with the rest of the twelve, um, had followed Jesus from the beginning. And yet others were about to come into the kingdom as well. As a result, this little community, is, it's going to grow And so by necessity, things would change. And in some ways, it won't be like it was in the good old days when it was just Jesus and and the twelve. And the disciples kind of have their own idea about what that's going to look like. And it's not the same thing that Jesus is thinking. And the reality that would come would eventually expose their false assumptions about how things work in his kingdom. How would they be tempted to respond? How should they respond? Well, Jesus' parable offers us a preview. You see, Jesus' 12 disciples have been following him from the very beginning. It's been three years now. They're the whole day workers in the story. It's actually a story about 
them. They've suffered loss already. As Peter says, we've already left everything to follow you. And like the laborers that we read about in verse 12, who talk about how they've borne the burden of work and the heat of the day, these 12 disciples have put in more time. They've suffered longer. They've paid their dues. They've already been sent out by him. They've already cast out demons in Jesus' name. They've already seen his glory at the transfiguration. And then this guy that Jesus just meets in chapter 19 is promised treasures in heaven for doing just now, at the 11th hour, what Jesus' disciples had been doing for years. And Jesus says through the parable that in God's kingdom, in God's economy, they get exactly the same. The full-day laborers and the 11th-hour laborers, the long-time disciples, the new believers, and even the deathbed converts, and that doesn't sit well with everyone hearing. Verse 11, it says that they began to grumble against the landowner, the one who represents God in the parable. The word translated grumble, it's this Greek word gungudzo. It's a great gungudzo, which is great because it means a continuous rumbling complaint. The word sounds like what you're doing. It's like that gungudzo, just gungudzo. And yet these people were given exactly what they were promised. Why the grumbling? Why take such an offense when you're given exactly what promised? Why does this offend them? Why does this maybe offend us? Well, to put it simply, there's something in us that just can't stand someone else getting better than we think they deserve, or what Christians call grace. We struggle with grace. As one pastor put it more bluntly, we hate grace grace. And that struggle with grace is a theme that runs all throughout the scriptures. We heard it in the Old Testament reading, uh, where uh, in Jonah chapter 4, we see the conclusion of what happens when God says, hey Jonah, you're my prophet, you represent my people, go call this city to repentance, knowing that if they repented, they would be saved. But this wasn't any city, this was Nineveh, the capital of the brutal Assyrian empire. Everybody in Israel wanted to see them burn. And so Jonah spends the first two chapters of the book not going to them, so they be preached to and maybe repent, but running the other way. In chapter 3, he finally repents. He finally preaches to them, and they repent. And in chapter 4, after seeing God's mercy, God's grace poured out on the wicked Ninevites, how does Jonah celebrate? He mopes, he complains, he whines, because he can't stand seeing God's grace poured out on others. We see the same thing in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells the story of, of a younger brother who takes his portion of the family inheritance, spends it recklessly, lives wildly until he's flat broke, comes back groveling and is forgiven. And the one person in the whole village that refuses to come to celebrate this lost dead son returning is his much more righteous older brother, the one representing the Pharisees, the religious elite. In Jesus' day, they despise grace. And we see the same struggle here in this, this passage. You see, in the end, the whole day workers weren't grumbling because their own work exceeded their wages. They were grumbling because others' wages exceeded their work. You see, like the parable of the lost sons, this parable shows us how much people hate grace but here Jesus is doing something different because here the people that hate grace aren't those that represent Jesus' enemies anymore. It's those who represent his followers, the disciples who had been following Jesus for the longest time. And that tells us something. 
that it's not just those outside the church that struggle with seeing grace given to others. It's actually those in the church as well. You see, if we're honest, we often don't want to see others receive better than they deserve because we think that might cheapen what we've done or what we've been given. See, if you look there in verse 12, the workers' protest was that they've borne the burden of the work. They've done more. The heat of the day, we've suffered more. While these Johnny-come-lately workers worked only an hour, and that after the blazing sun had already dipped down, so it's almost cool outside, and in spite of that, you have made them equal to, to us? It's the heart of their complaint right there, and yet in many ways it's our own complaint. You can almost hear the same words of protest today. I was here first. I've suffered longer. I've suffered more. I've been through the worst of it. Doesn't that mean anything to you? Jesus says it does mean something. It means they'll be the most likely to despise his grace when it comes to others. I remember hearing about a, a, a men's Bible study where a new participant was there when they were looking at the theme of grace. Uh, God's riches poured out on those who only receive his, his wrath, and they couldn't stand it because they've done so much. They probably did more, served longer, more faithfully than anyone else in that room combined. And as a result, they couldn't stand the thought that that doesn't earn them anything more than anybody else in that room. Jesus says, though, in his parable that in the end, they all get the same. They're treated equally under grace. And if we're honest, we don't want to be considered equal with those who have done less than us or that have done worse than us. We actually want to be considered better. Ray Cortez, a a pastor in Florida, um, teaches the new members class at their church and every time tells the story of Jeffrey Dahmer. Uh, I think we have a a picture of him maybe up here on the walls. Uh, Jeffrey Dahmer was the most notorious American serial killer in the late 80s and the early 90s, uh, killed and then cannibalized 17 victims, was convicted and sentenced to, I think it was 15 consecutive life prison sentences. And yet while he was in prison, he was reached out to by Christians who had never met him, sending him Bible studies, sending him Bibles. He began to read, he began to study he began to believe in one who lived the life that he should have lived, died the death that his sins deserved, and offers forgiveness. Jeffrey Dahmer believed. He repented. He was baptized. And his life was utterly transformed. And not long later, he was killed in prison. A member of uh, the church where the guy who baptized Dahmer went was a college professor, someone who was very well accomplished, the top 1 or 2% educationally, accomplishment-wise. And his response says a lot when he says, well, if Dahmer is in heaven after what he'd done, I don't think I want to be there. Cortez in his membership class says, if you're a Christian, that means that one day you'll be in heaven with Jeffrey Dahmer. And if you don't want to be in heaven with Jeffrey Dahmer, then this isn't the church for you. I heard about that, and so I asked somebody who knew him, why does he say that? And he says that, and he said this boldly, that he knows that if someone that hates the grace that saved 
Jeffrey Dahmer is in their church than every decision that a church makes on the basis of grace or makes so that others can experience that type of grace will aggravate and infuriate that person until they can't stand it anymore and they either actively oppose it or leave in protest. It's because he says that we actually hate grace. And our struggle isn't just with seeing others receive. It's it's with seeing ourselves as the recipients of grace, as those who actually need grace. Jesus knew that his message would be offensive. He even says in Matthew 11, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And I really understood this well when I had a chance to to share this message of Jesus with a a student named Sebastian. Um, I was talking about how Jesus lived the life that that we should have lived, died the death that our sins deserve, and he was maybe expecting me to say, here's 17 things you can do to make God love you more and get you into heaven. And instead, I shared this gospel of grace, and when I asked him what he thought, he said he was offended. And I asked him why, and he says, I don't want to believe that Jesus would have to do that for me. I want to think I can do that for myself. I guess it's just my pride. And I think he's right, because pride hates grace. It doesn't want to see it given to others, and it doesn't want to have to be its recipient. And yet if we can't stand seeing someone else extending grace to another, Jesus says that it's actually God that we're struggling with, and that our struggle actually says more about us than it does about the other person Because you see that phrase in verse 15, he says, Are you envious because I am generous? It's an English translation of this figure of speech in the original language. Is your eye evil because I am good? In other words, does God's goodness incite a reaction that actually exposes the evil in our own hearts? A heart that wants to be considered better than others. You see, whether we despise grace given to others or simply the thought that we need it ourselves, Jesus says this only for our benefit, only because this is something we desperately need to hear. So why do we need to hear this? Well, you see, as more and more people, we're going to come into this vineyard that Jesus spoke about, Christ's kingdom, the church, the temptation for factions would arise. The old guard versus the newcomer, those who had followed Jesus from the beginning versus those who are just entering the kingdom now. And because longevity and, and the of our labors grants us a privileged status and, and benefits so many other places, we might assume that that's how things work in Jesus' kingdom too, what we often call a, a meritocracy. And that can lead to two problems amongst the laborers, amongst the followers of Jesus, entitlement and insecurity. Entitlement, particularly for those of us who maybe have longer spiritual resumes, this is something that pastors probably struggle with the most. Uh, Peter felt that he and the twelve were entitled to a better reward than the rich young ruler was offered. In Mark chapter 10, we see the same issue where James and John say to Jesus, say to God in the flesh, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Quite the demand when you're talking to God in the flesh. And yet we too can develop the same sense of entitlement because of our own spiritual resumes, asking in our own way, well then what will there be for us? See, we're prone to believe that rooted in our own efforts that, that God might actually owe us more than others, or maybe more than we've received. And when that happens, our, our sense of entitlement can turn to bitterness. 
Maybe it's the couple who tries to grow their kids God's way uh, and send their kids to Christian school. They homeschool them, and, and now when their kids are adults, they're far from God, and they're wondering, come on, God, we did our part. Maybe it's a woman who saves herself for marriage and then in marriage now finds herself infertile. Maybe it's the man who goes into his old age still poor, tithing generously his whole life while seeing the wicked around him getting rich. Any of them could be tempted to say, where do we God? I did my part. Why didn't you do yours? Thanks a lot, God. See, when our expectations don't match reality, hurt and bitterness often follow. Even if those expectations are, are based in false assumptions, are often unspoken beliefs. What Jesus does to combat that belief is, and that sense of entitlement here is very subtle and yet very subversive. In this parable, all of those working in the vineyard, whether the full day or even starting just at the 11th hour, are described as, as day laborers. Uh, some of them, to be a day laborer, that meant either you were a tenant farmer who had a small plot of land, but it wasn't enough to support you, or you were the child of one of these uh, farmers. You didn't have any inheritance coming your way, or maybe you'd already lost all of your land. Either way, all of the workers in this parable were those that had a need and likely needed the wages more than the landowner would have needed their labor. The only way they could make ends meet to support themselves, to bring home bread for their families, was to hire themselves out to a landowner. And, and in Deuteronomy, we see desperation of the day labor in those days when it says uh, that they need to be paid their wages each day before sunset because they're poor. They're counting on it. You see, all the laborers in this parable, whether the first or the last, were the poor. They're the vulnerable. They're, they're given what they needed. And yet Jesus is saying in this that their disciples, even those there from the very beginning, were not the rich. They're not the privileged class in his kingdom. They're the poor and the needy who found the one that could meet their needs earlier and labored for him longer, but in the end still get the same. See, the one-hour workers in this parable, those who by the 11th hour had no hope of being hired, no hope of having bread for them or their families, were not given what they deserved. They were given better than they deserved. They were given what they were needed, not what they'd earned. The Bible says that the wages that we earn, even just one sin, one act of spiritual adultery, one act of cosmic treason, is death. God says we don't want to get what we deserve. It's not so much that we want grace, it's that we desperately need grace, knowing that we've been given far greater than we ever deserved. That's actually what takes away that sense of entitlement. That sense of, of bitterness when we think that we actually deserve better. Yet the same message of grace that protests and protects against entitlement also protects against our sense of insecurity. This is, is more likely a struggle for those that are, are new believers or maybe new members in a, in a church community. I remember uh, when I was like 13 and a friend invited me to his youth group and I went and it was fun. The next week invited me. I went. It was fun. Third week, I didn't get the invitation but I really wanted to go. And so I called him and kind of sheepishly asked, is it okay if I come to your church again? Because I didn't know how things worked. I didn't know what was kosher. When you're new somewhere, you don't know what's kosher. You don't know where you stand. You don't know if you've quite earned your keep. And yet, 
It's the burden of those established members of a community to actually help the newcomers feel welcome. It's what we see in Acts chapter 9 when we see a Barnabas doing this for the newcomer with a shady past named Saul of Tarsus, who we later know as the Apostle Paul. Some of you here in this room, you're new to the faith. Maybe you're just new to this church, and with that can come a feeling of, of insecurity. You might feel like, like you're late coming to the party, or like you're, you're the first-year camper that doesn't know all the camp songs that everyone else is singing. Maybe it's because you feel you haven't accomplished as much as others. Maybe your spiritual resume isn't as beefy as you'd like it to be. Maybe you're not quite sure if you've done enough to get on God's good side. What Jesus is saying is that he wants to give you the exact same gift that he gives to those who have been following Jesus faithfully for as long as they can remember. Because in God's economy, the last in are not the first out. They're treated the same as the first. This tells us who's going to struggle with this most. Pastors, preachers, elders, those with impressive spiritual resumes, those who think they've done enough, those who have suffered and served most and the longest, and yet those who feel they've paid their dues and have the greater reward awaiting them if they think that spiritually they're first, will feel that they're the last when they see others getting just as much grace as them. And yet remember, everybody in this room, we're reading this parable 2,000 years later. Relatively speaking, we're all the 11th hour believers. Many have gone before us, some literally giving their lives in service to God and to his kingdom. And, And yet Jesus says that tomorrow's deathbed convert will receive the same reward as the aged Christian martyr. Some might wonder, doesn't that somehow cheapen grace? I remember talking with somebody who had been confronting just then a lifelong pattern, a long pattern of sin, 10 years of disobedience and rebellion they identify. And they asked, after 10 years of disobedience, doesn't it cheapen things to only start obeying now? So I shared the story of the parable of the workers in the field and God's promise of grace, far beyond anything that they'd deserved, far beyond their own faithfulness, led to their repentance, led to their obedience. You see, it's never a bad time to repent and to experience forgiveness, whether you're talking about your relationship with God or your relationship with others. If you've been here the last few weeks, you know we've been talking a lot about reconciliation because Jesus has been talking about reconciliation here in Matthew's Gospel. And what's going to happen is that some of you will probably start putting that into practice in ways that you maybe have never done before, choosing to treat others' prior sins the way that God treats yours in Christ. And that's likely to upset some people around you because often we don't want to see people getting better than they deserve. We don't want them to experience generous grace because deep down inside it betrays a truth that we actually think that in some way we're actually more deserving of God's grace, more deserving of his favor and, and his blessings than, than they are. And it's that heart issue that Jesus is confronting head-on in this passage. Because the more we've sacrificed and suffered and served in the name of Jesus, the more likely we're going to struggle when we see God's grace poured out on others who have done far less or who have done far worse, in our opinion. And yet as a community, if we don't embrace grace, if we hate grace, we're never going to change as individuals or as a community. You see, we'll, we'll never see a community that actually lives out 
the things that we say that we believe. And what happens over time is that apart from grace, as more and more people enter the kingdom, enter the church, factions develop, and we begin to start measuring ourselves against each other like it's a meritocracy. Maybe it's in terms of of those who have paid their dues versus those who just haven't yet. Or maybe in terms of those who get it, usually thinking we're the ones who get it, versus those who don't get it. Maybe it's those who really know the true value of fill in the blank. It could be all sorts of things versus those who just don't. It's always some version of us versus them rather than we. We who need mercy and have received it abundantly in Christ. See, all of these things, all these things that cause factions and divisions and basically comparisons of relative merit, prizing one person's strengths over another's, one way of doing things over another way of doing things, and Jesus loved his followers enough to share the offense of grace because he knows that only that will actually keep together this small, tight-knit community as it grows, as it diversifies, as it changes, as others begin to experience grace. The reason why we have deacons in this church or any church is the church started growing and they had to reorganize things because people weren't going to be cared for well if they kept doing things the way that they did it. And yet eventually as this community grew, as they diversified, there would eventually be disagreements between members of different generations, ones that are recorded 2,000 years later. We read in Galatians 2 that eventually Peter, one of the first to follow Jesus, right there from the beginning, would eventually need to be rebuked, to be called to the carpet, to be called out by a newer Christian with a checkered past named the Apostle Paul. And when the veteran Christian was called out by the newer convert, Peter could have said, How dare you? Do you know who I am? I walked with Jesus for years before you even heard of him. I cast out demons in his name. I saw the transfiguration on the mountain. How dare you presume to be my teacher? What gives you the right Jesus gives him the right because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. You see, what they would experience as a community is the same dynamic that we experience today in any church and the leveling power of the gospel they needed then is the same thing that we need today in this church and in any church because grace levels the playing field when we realize that the ground is level at the foot of the cross See, knowing that we all need this, this radical grace, that's what changes those who receive it. Those who know that I deserve God's wrath. And yet because of what Jesus did, I've received his riches. Finally, we need to hear this parable. Because it shows us that our God is generous. You see, whether you're an old-timer or a newcomer, Jesus says the eternal reward is the same. Reward is far out of proportion, always far out of proportion to any of our service, any of our sacrifice, anything that we've done. It's what we see in, in verse 29, where Jesus tells those that everyone who has left the things they find most valuable, uh, parents, a family, uh, lands, will not fail to receive a hundred times what they'd lost. That's a 10,000% return. Your tax guy, your personal advisor, nobody can promise you anything near that. He's showing the abundant generosity of our Father. 
Because in the end, if you've served Christ faithfully for decades, and yet, like all others, mixed motives, tainted with sin, when you cross over into eternity, when you finish the race, you cross the line not holding your own resume, but Jesus' resume. And when the serial killer, deathbed convert crosses into eternity, they come holding the same. In the end, both receive the same blessing that Jesus deserves far better than they ever deserved, and yet exactly what they needed. And here's why. In the end, Jesus could have said, I lived a perfect, sinless life. They did not. I suffered the cross. They did not. I experienced your judgment on the cross, and now you, God, you're going to treat them who believe in me the same way that I deserve to be treated? That is so unfair. And yet Jesus didn't say that because it sounds to our ears so unfair, and yet it's so the gospel of grace. The 11th hour worker in this parable has just as much claim on a denarius as the sinners in this room, including myself, have on salvation. But in Christ, we get it anyway. You see, in Christ, God doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us what we need. We have another picture up here. Um, Ray Cortez uh, tells a story about a, a baseball pitcher named Matt LaChapa. In 1993, he was drafted by the San Diego Padres baseball organization. In 1996, at a minor league game he was playing in, he had a heart attack. It took 20 minutes of CPR before the ambulance finally got there, but the low level of oxygen to his brain for that 20-minute span caused permanent damage. And eventually, Matt was confined to a wheelchair, which we see in this next slide. Since then, Matt hasn't recorded a single win for any of his teams. Not a single strikeout, not an out of any form, even though that's the very thing that a pitcher gets paid to do. In fact, Matt doesn't contribute on the field at all. In spite of that, recently the San Diego Padres re-signed him to a one-year minor league contract just as they'd done the year before and the year before. In fact, 20 years since his heart attack, the contract has given him access to health care and a way to support himself because following the heart attack, a decision was made by the organization that Matt was going to be a padre for life, that they were going to treat him like family. And so every year, that new contract and those paychecks keep on coming, not because he's earned it, but because he needs it. Jesus says in the end, the reward is that you would inherit eternal life, that you would be given what is yours, not because of what you've done but be, or who you are, because of whose you are, because you have been brought into this family. In Christ, we are all Matt LaChapa, because we all serve a God who doesn't say, I want to pay, but a God who says, I want to give, a God who gives radically out of proportion to any of our service to him. And when we see that, when we see that God's blessings are all unearned, that it's all a gift, that everything is all of grace, we realize there's nobody left to look down on. There's no reason left for a sense of entitlement or bitterness or insecurity. Only gratitude for grace. May the same be true of us in this place. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you're grace is abundant and rich, that it is radically out of portion, out of proportion with anything that we've done 
to deserve your love. In fact, we, by our sins, we've earned your disfavor. We've deserved your wrath. Father, overwhelm us with a sense of your generous grace to us that it may undermine our bitterness, our factions, our sense of self-righteousness, entitlement, or even our sense of insecurity before you and before others. Overwhelm us with your grace, even now at this table. Amen.